6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Gospels. We are in hour 15 of Learning the Bible in 24 Hours, in which we're going to address the Gospels. Obviously, we finished Unit 1, the Old Testament. We've had an introduction into the New Testament, but now we're jumping right in. And we're going to attempt in this hour to summarize the Gospels. That's in itself an ambitious task, but uh, that's what we're up to. The question is, we speak of the canon. That's, a, that's from the Greek word meaning rule or basis. The canon, the, the Bible. Is it complete? The Old Testament ended with unexplained ceremonies, all those sacrifices we went through. It also closes with unachieved purposes, the covenants and so on. We have in the Old Testament unappeased longings. And of course, we have unfulfilled prophecies. So the Old Testament by itself, the Tanakh, as our Jewish friends would call it, is incomplete in the sense that it leaves you dangling. It's incomplete. What completes it? Jesus gave us the key in John 5, verse 39. He says, Jesus himself said, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. I want you to remember when you read the New Testament, when they present Jesus Christ from the scriptures, which happens several times in there, the scriptures, the term there, refers to the Old Testament. The New Testament's in formation at that time. So one of the challenges I, I, I put forth to you is, can you present Jesus Christ to your Jewish friends using just the Old Testament? That's what they did all through the New Testament. Think about it. There's an incident that occurs in Luke 24 where Jesus greets them on the Emmaus Road. He gives them a seven-mile Bible study. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But there's an interesting verse there. He says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded unto them all this, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice that. Beginning at Moses. Who wrote the Torah? Moses. It says so many times all through the scriptures we reviewed. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. Now, in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of prophecies. I thought we'd go over each one this evening. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Let's just make a quick glimpse at those Old Testament prophecies that are quoted just in the Gospels. That he was to be of David's family. That he'd be born of a virgin. That he'd be born in Bethlehem. That he would sojourn in Egypt. That he would live in Galilee. In fact, in Nazareth. He would be announced by an Elijah-like herald that, that would occasion the massacre of the Bethlehem's children, that he would proclaim a jubilee to the world. His mission would include the Gentiles. 
His ministry would be one of healing. He would teach through parables. And there are lots of others, of course, too. These are the ones that are directly quoted as fulfilled in the, in, in the New Testament text. By the way, he'd be disbelieved, rejected by the rulers. And then there's a whole bunch of just the last week. He'd make a triumphal entry in Jerusalem, betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, be like a smitten shepherd. He would be given vinegar and gall. They would cast lots for his garments. His side would be pierced. Not a bone would be broken. He would die among the malefactors. His dying words were foretold. He would be buried by a rich man. He'd rise from the dead on the third day. And the resurrection would be followed by the destruction of Jerusalem. All these things are mentioned in the Old Testament and expressly indicated as fulfilled in the New. And the references are all there. They'll be in your notes. But So the New Testament consists, of course, just like the Old Testament open, it has five historical books. Just like we have the Torah, the five books of Moses. In the New Testament, we have the four Gospels and Luke volume 2. Luke is in two volumes, Luke and Acts, which is like Luke 1 and Luke 2, if you will, but five books. Then we have the interpretation of those historical books in 21 interpretive letters. The, the formal term is epistle, just a word for letters. Paul's epistles are 14 of them. If I count the book of Hebrews, which I do, people, some scholars feel that Paul may not have written the book of Hebrews because it's unsigned, but there's some reasons for it being unsigned. We'll deal with that when we get there. But 14 I'll call Pauline epistles, and 7, for lack of another word, I'll call the Hebrew Christian epistles, written by Jews to Jews, and so forth. Then, of course, the final book, the Apocalypse, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice that word is singular. It's not revelations, plural. Whenever, whenever I hear someone say that, I know they haven't been to any of our Bible studies. It's singular, and we'll de obviously deal with that especially when we get there. It's interesting that the Old Testament presents Jesus Christ in prophecy. The Gospels will present Jesus Christ in history, as it actually happened. The book of Acts will present Jesus Christ in the early church. And the epistles will... Uh, express Christ in the experience, and the apocalypse, of course, in His coming glory. So the Old Testament says, in effect, behold, He comes. And the Gospel says, says, behold, He dies. And yet Acts says, behold, He lives. And the epistles say, behold, He saves. And of course, behold, He reigns. So that's a, a snapshot of what we're up against, of how he, uh, he shall glorify me. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus Christ. Taking another snapshot of the New Testament another way, we've got the historical books, the four Gospels and Acts. We have then, following that, the epistles from Romans to Philemon. And following those, we have the Hebrew epistles from Hebrews to Jude. And then, of course, the prophetic books. And we're going to focus right now, of course, on the Gospels. We'll take these four Gospels. We'll talk about each one, what makes them distinctive. And then we'll try to summarize what they all say in a singular, geographically-based profile. And that will give you a quick exposure to it. One of the things that you want to be sensitive to is the Gospels are designed. They're designed. In, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First of all, Matthew, being a Jew, presents Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark presents Jesus Christ in his role as the suffering servant. 
Luke emphasized, being a doctor, he emphasizes Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, and John presents Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And what's interesting, once you recognize that, you'll discover that every detail of the Gospels support that mission in some surprising ways. For example, the genealogies. Matthew, being a Jew and presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, starts his genealogy at Abraham. Abraham called, if in a sense, as the first Jew, if you will. And he gives the legal line of Jesus' genealogy. Mark presenting a servant. We don't worry about the pedigree of servants. So he's the only one that does not have a genealogy in it. Luke, because he's presenting Jesus as the Son of Man, he starts the bloodline from Adam. And he takes it through, and we'll examine that more closely here in a little bit. John has a genealogy, but most people don't recognize it. The first three verses of the Gospel of John are, in a sense, the genealogy of the pre-existent one, God himself. Now, one of the things we talked about when we were in Jeremiah is the blood curse that was pronounced on the royal line. By the time you get to Jeconiah, God has really had it with the line of kings. And uh, Jeconiah, um, to, to him, he said, Thus saith the Lord, Write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Well, not only was Jeconiah the last of the kings before the Babylonian captivity, but this is a blood curse. This is a curse on the royal line. I should point out that Jeconiah and Jehiachin and Coniah, all names for the same guy. But I always visualize, by way of review, I always visualize when I read this that uh, there must have been a celebration in the councils of Satan. Because from Satan's point of view, it would seem that God has defeated his own plan. Because the Messiah was to come from the line of David. But here we have a blood curse on the line of David. How can that be? As you ponder that apparent enigma, I always visualize God turning to the angel and saying, watch this one, okay? So the genealogies, okay? We have Matthew takes his genealogy from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and so right on down through to David. Straightforward enough. Luke, being a doctor and oriented to Christ's humanity, the Son of Man, he starts his genealogy, in effect, from Adam. And from Adam to Noah, we reviewed when we went through Genesis 5, remember those 10. And from Noah on to Abraham, he, he fills it in with Shem, or all the rest of them, anyway. When Luke gets to Abraham, down through David, obviously, Luke and Matthew are identical, if you examine them carefully. But that takes us to David. When you get to the house of David, Matthew takes his genealogy through the first surviving son of Bathsheba, down through Jehoiachin, down to Joseph. Now, Jehoiachin is where the blood curse is announced on the bloodline of Jehoiachin. You come down through that bloodline, you come to Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ. But he was not the blood father of Jesus Christ, therefore the curse 
that was pronounced in Jehoiachin or Jehoiakim does not descend to Joseph. In contrast to that, Luke does a different thing. When he gets to David, he takes a left turn. He doesn't go through uh, Solomon. He goes through a second surviving son of Bathsheba, Nathan, and down through, ultimately, to Heli, the father of Mary. We could go through some of the details in this. Uh, there's a number of them that are blotted out because of third and fourth generation issues. And I won't go through all of the technicalities. They'll be in the notes that accompany this. But uh, the main point is what most people have not done their homework about the daughters of Zelophehad in the Tanakh. In the Torah, there's an exception on the rules of inheritance. Zelophehad had five daughters, no sons. He went to Moses and asked for a special dispensation. Moses went to prayer to the Lord. The Lord says, give it to him. So in Numbers 27, we have this recorded with, that if he has no sons and the daughters marry within the tribe, they will inherit. That's the basic idea here. When you get to the days of Joshua, these five daughters come to Joshua and say, hey, check the record. We got an exception. He says, indeed they do. So in Joshua 17, this is recorded. What happened when this uh, occurred was that the father of the bride adopted the husband as his own son. And so the son-in-law became a legal son of the father of the bride, do you follow me, to make the inheritance. That occurs in Ezra 2, Nehemiah 7, Numbers 32, and other places. And so what happens, is, what you discover is, all this <coughs> anticipates the lineage of Jesus Christ. This exception in the Torah anticipates our Messiah. See, Joseph was, in addition to, to being the son of his father, he's also the son-in-law of Heli, Mary's father. And that's so stated in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Many people don't notice it because in the Greek, the word is in nomitso, which means reckoned as by law. In other words, he's a son-in-law. But that way, the inheritance flows to Jesus Christ through Mary, thus end-running, if you will, the curse that was pronounced in Jeconiah. I mention this. It's important in a messianic sense, but it also is a lesson to realize that every detail in the Scripture, Old and New Testament, is there deliberately by design. And as you discover that, when you find what appears to be an extraneous detail, if you'll be diligent and dig into that, you'll discover it's relevant, it's, and it almost always will point, of course, to Jesus Christ. So that's the virgin birth. It was hinted at in the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman, in Genesis 3.15, we notice. It was prophesied in Isaiah, in Isaiah 7.14, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And uh, the end run of the blood curse in Jeconiah. So there's three allusions, if you will, that, to support the virgin birth issue. When you get to uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories that only we got in the Father, full of grace and truth. So, we see that same title, the Word, that John uses the Word of God as his title of Jesus Christ all through his uh, gospel, but he also used it in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, 
we see, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's a title of Jesus Christ. One of the most interesting definitions for truth is when the word and the deed become one. And Jesus Christ's incarnation is a fulfillment of all those Old Testament allusions to the, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior that would come. Well, so we go, that's one of the design of the Gospels. The, the Matthew, being, uh, presenting Jesus Christ the Messiah, emphasized the one Jesus said. Matthew took shorthand. We know that because he was a tax collector. It was a job requirement to have stenographic skills. So he was able to write shorthand. That's one reason uh, Matthew's Gospel is the longest, because he has the discourses written down verbatim. If you take the discourses out, Mark is longer than Matthew. Matthew's long, a larger Gospel because the, the discourses are verbatim. Mark emphasizes his servanthood, and so he emphasizes what Jesus did. Now he's actually the secretary for Peter, and Peter was an action guy. Peter, we all know, we all love Peter. He was ready, fire, aim kind of guy, you know. Anyway, uh, but uh, that was Peter in the Gospel. After, in Acts on, you see him filled by the Holy Spirit. It's astonishing to see the difference in articulation. Uh, we see Peter in the Gospel period, he's clumsy, he's always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. From Acts chapter 2 on, filled by the Spirit, you look at his sermons, Acts chapter 2, this first sermon, Acts chapter 3, the second sermon, they are astonishingly elegant, well-organized, to the point you see the Spirit at work. Well, Luke, of course, emphasizing that, that his humanity emphasizes when Jesus felt. And John, of course, emphasizes who Jesus really was. You know, the, the, the remarkable film that Mel Gibson produced is a, a blessing in many, many ways, but the one, one of the things that it um, doesn't convey is who he really was. The crucifixion of Christ was not a tragedy, it was an achievement. But uh, in any case, uh, we're greatly indebted to Mel for that effort. At the same time, we should recognize that shortcoming. We need to understand who it all, it all takes relevance as to who Jesus Christ is. So Matthew, what Jesus said, Mark, what he did, Luke, what he felt, John, who he really was. Matthew's writing to the Jew, Mark to the Roman, Luke to the Greek, John to the church. Different focus, different emphasis. The first miracle, being a very Jewish thing, the lepers cleansed, because to a Jew, the leprosy was a emblem of sin. Uh, both the G Gentile emphasis, both Roman and Greek, a demon was expelled in, in Mark and a demon expelled in Luke. These are the first miracles. John picks for his first miracle to record the water turning to wine, a mystical thing, emphasizing the deity of Christ in a different way altogether. Uh, the last thing, uh, Matthew, the Jewish gospel in a sense, ends as a Jew would focus on the resurrection, very, or, very focused on that. Mark emphasizes the ascension. Luke emphasizes the promise of the Spirit, and he, in a sense, is setting up his sequel for Luke Volume 2, the book of Acts, the giving of the Spirit in the, in the early church. John closes with the promise of the return of Christ, and that sets up his sequel, 
What's John's sequel? The book of Revelation. So you begin to recognize the evidence of dying all through here. Now remember when we were in Numbers, we talked about the camp of Israel. The east, west, south, and north, how the, they had different ensigns. On the east was the Judah, on west was Ephraim, and uh, the south was Reuben, and north was the, these were the camps, each camp of three tribes. Of Judah, the emblem was the lion, on the east was the ox, on the south was the man, and the north was the eagle, if you recall. And how interesting it is that these four faces are the four faces of the cherubim. They're also emblematic, if you will, of the four Gospels. Lion of the tribe of Judah, the ox being the emblem of service, the emphasis on Mark. Man being a son of man being Luke's emphasis, and the eagle being emblematic, at least, of John. So it's kind of interesting. There's also a different style because uh, Matthew focuses on the groupings. Mark is like a snapshot, it's like a shooting script, and that, that was very characteristic of Peter's style anyway. And Luke is, of course, narrative, a very, very uh, well-documented narrative, easily checked out. And, uh, of course, John is the mystical one, as we'll notice as we get into the details. But there's some anticipative pre-announcements that we should be sensitive to. In the upper room, Jesus says to his disciples, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father shall send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. Here's a statement by Jesus Christ that anticipates and authenticates what they did in advance. Through that the Holy Spirit will be the one doing this and he will bring all things to their recall. Uh, so we believe that the four Gospels, or in fact the whole New Testament, was very supernaturally superintended in its detail. Something else that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit is, He says, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself. Strange. But whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. Very interesting remark, the Holy Spirit will not speak of Himself. Now you may recall as you went through the Old Testament, we noticed several times there was a type, a typological anticipation in which the Holy Spirit was always represented by an unnamed servant. We saw that in, in Genesis 24 when Eliezer is to gather a bride for, for Isaac. We saw that in the book of Ruth that an unnamed servant introduces Ruth to Boaz. It's interesting, wherever we see the typological application, the Holy Spirit's always unnamed. Even when we know by redoing some research what his name was. His name was Eliezer, which means comforter. So it's interesting how consistent that is. He doesn't speak of himself. He's sort of almost hiding in those allusions. So we have the coming one, sometimes called the second Adam. He's a prophet like Moses. He's a priest like Melchizedek. He's a champion like Joshua. He's an offering like Isaac. He's a king like David. He's a wise counselor like Solomon. He's beloved, then rejected, then exalted son like Joseph. So we see the coming one anticipated even in a broad typological sense in the main players in the Old Testament. And there are rhetorical devices like this that are delivered by the Holy Spirit. Maybe when we were in Hosea, this is all a little bit of review here, where God says through Hosea, I have also spoken by the prophets, I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. 
And indeed, we've explored some of those. Allegories, analogies, metaphors, similes, similitudes, types. There are over 200 different kinds of devices in the Bible. And we've, in, we've cataloged all of those and given you references and examples in the appendix to our book uh, uh, on, the, on the codes and so forth. Now, there are types. We looked at types. The Ark of the Covenant's a type. The sacrifice on the brazen altar. The mercy seat in the sanctuary. The water from the rock. The manna from the sky. The brazen serpent lifted up. We've talked about all of these in the Old Testament as types. The Passover lamb is, in a sense, the ultimate one. And the scapegoat. These are all types from the Old Testament. Those are types. That's one form. There's metaphors. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a metaphor. The good shepherd. The lily of the valley. The root out of a dry ground. The fruitful branch. He had no form nor comeliness, yet he's altogether lovely. And so, on. so we see these enigmatic allusions that, in a metaphoric sense. Well, moving on, we also notice that there's a lot of healings on the Sabbath. The demoniac in Capernaum, Peter's mother-in-law's uh, raised, uh, cast out demons on a Sunday. They're not all done on Shabbat. The impotent man in Jerusalem, the man with a withered hand, the woman bowed together, man with dropsy, man born blind. Many of these are done on the ones that are recorded. They're probably done on many days, but the ones on the Sabbath are recorded, especially because that raises, of course, these tensions between the leadership at that time and our Lord Himself. Making the point, first of all, that He's the Lord of the Sabbath Himself in any case, but also, he points out that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And, and that is one of the main themes that causes a lot of tension. But let's start focusing on the four Gospels, how they're specific. The Gospel of Matthew, of course, emphasized that Jesus is the, uh, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In the introduction, we have the genealogy, the baptism, the temptations, and so forth. Then Matthew focuses on, primarily, the Galilean ministry up north up at Nazareth and around the Sea of Galilee and so forth. We'll find that it's a tenfold message. There are ten miracles and there's ten rejections. Again, this tenfold governmental emphasis. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 